Hello and welcome to a brand new edition of the Culture File Weekly with all the best of this week's arts and culture, both Irby and indeed Orby and this time with the creators of two Irish albums just released a collection of contemporary vocal music, ghost songs and an electronic variation on the Goldberg Variations from Xenia Pestover Bennett and we'll meet the upcyclers, it's like repairing, behind Refunk but we begin this time with the return of the cat and indeed of the dog, not to mention the robot seal, all of which have come to the attention of Jennifer Walsh in her latest Things Know Things. This time last year we got a cat who we called Nomi. Like most cats, Nomi's tastes and habits are mysterious and unpredictable, but over the last few weeks he has taken to sleeping on our bed at night. These visitations occur on his schedule rather than ours, but those nights where he deigns to grace us with his presence are the best ones. It's one of the small but sublime pleasures of this life, surfacing from anxious dreams to realise there's a warm pool of cat between your feet, a furry lifeboat keeping you anchored to this world as you drift back down into sleep. What does Nomi get out of sleeping in with us? Warmth? A sense of protection? I think we get much more. A few years back, I was in Tokyo and I visited the Museum of Emerging Technology. There are so many excellent robots at the Museum of Emerging Technology. Asimo, the bipedal showstopper who can play football and converse in sign language. The Atonaroids, who sit primly, nodding and murmuring encouragingly at whatever their human conversational partner is saying. And then there's Paro, the therapy seal. Paro was designed for people in hospitals and care homes to cuddle. He's supposed to be a baby harp seal. He's about the size of a large Jack Russell Terrier, so perfect for cradling in your arms. Paro is covered in soft fur and he has big eyes and even bigger eyelashes. You pet Paro and he wriggles with happiness. He coos and chirps. He gazes up at you. Even Paro's charger is designed to look like a soother and is plugged directly into his mouth. So charging him is very, very cute. Paro's creator, Takanori Shibata, describes the positive effects on patients of interacting with Paro, how Paro helps relieve depression and anxiety. In this sense, Paro is like any therapy animal, except, as Shibata notes, he doesn't need to be fed and he doesn't die. Can You Pet the Dog is a Twitter account with over half a million followers. Can You Pet the Dog is run by Tristan Cooper, who describes the account as a catalogue of pettable animals in video games. The premise is simple, clip after clip of footage from a huge range of games, featuring not only dogs, but also cats, wolves, pandas and other animals. A caped man stands at the foot of an erupting volcano, petting a huge white dog as ash rains down. A woman on the banks of a river lush with tropical foliage kneels to scratch a dog under the chin. Disembodied hands, yours but with Neolithic fur cuffs, reach out to cuddle a friendly wolf. 
so many good boys, write the commenters. All the lovely good boys being so good. We puny humans get something from the animals in our lives, whether those animals are real, robotic or even virtual. Deep in the comments of Can You Pet the Dog, I find users discussing an important question. What was the first video game where the player could pet a dog? And the answer is Zork 2, a text-based game with no graphics from 1981. You simply typed in pet dog and the game typed back. The dog is now insanely happy, slobbering all over the place and whining with uncontained doggish joy. Jennifer Walsh there with her latest Things Know Things. On Twitter, follow at Can You Pet the Dog for all the good boys and at Culture File Pod for all the good files. Now, it is, of course, way beneath the script department at Culture File Towers to lean on predictable puns when it comes to discussing a project revisiting one of J.S. Bach's landmark works from a contemporary perspective. We save all that carry-on for the podcast titles. All the same, pianist senior passed over Bennett is making a sci-fi journey in the direction of 1741 in her new album Goldberg Verk, which will be performing live in Dublin this weekend. The composition by the Viennese composer Karl-Heinz Essel blends Bach with contemporary electronics and spatialized audio, adding a brand new sense of space and grandeur. Senior Pastova Bennett talked to Louise McMahon about liberating Bach and herself. This is a new realization of Bach's Goldberg variations, but it's also a new piece in its own right. It's a piece called Goldberg Werk. It's by an Austrian composer. His name is Karl-Heinz Essel. And he reordered the original variations, so they appear in a different kind of configuration, although the overall structure is the same. So we have the aria at the beginning, we have the aria at the end. He also has his own electronic interludes that we hear in between the variations. So it's sort of putting Bach into a contemporary context, if you like. We know, of course, originally the Goldberg variations would have been for a harpsichord, and not just any harpsichord, but a harpsichord with two manuals, so two keyboards. So this is a very important distinction because many of the variations are really difficult to play technically on a modern piano. We only have one keyboard. If you have two manuals or keyboards, you can literally pass your hands one on top of another. And if you do all that on a single keyboard, you're kind of clawing at yourself, trying to fit your fingers. But Karl-Heinz also made a version for string trio, and then he recorded the string trio. So this is Orpheus Trio in Vienna. And he used that recording to manipulate and generate the electronic material. So what we hear in between the piano variations, a lot of that material still comes from the string trio version. So we hear these kind of beautiful harmonies of the original aria. Stretched and and manipulated and string sounds kind of moving around. But then they morph into different sounds, they change. And there's even, I believe, a tiny little bit of saxophone. 
but you wouldn't know. It's really, really hidden. It's just one single high pitch. So it's, um, yeah, different sounds that he uses. If you hear it live, the electronic interludes are actually spatialized. They move through the concert space. You know, it's not a fixed sound source coming from a loudspeaker. In fact, we don't see the speakers, they're hidden and the sound moves. That's why you need a second performer on stage. So it's a duo. So there's the pianist, myself, and then there's another performer who is moving the sound around. And it's really, really an amazing experience. So it kind of moves behind the audience and then it comes out of the piano and it's, it's a very clever setup. It's really, really amazing. There is a tiny little loudspeaker that's hidden inside the piano and it uses the resonance of the piano. So it's a transducer speaker, which means it only sounds if it's in contact with the surface. So it sits on the resonant soundboard of the piano. The pedal of the piano is down, which means that all the strings can vibrate and this is what kind of creates the resonance. And there's another speaker behind the audience. So it's a very simple setup. It's really only two loudspeakers. And in our recording, we also created a binaural version, which gives some idea of this movement. So there is a bonus download binaural version, which has at least some of the movement, not the same as being in concert. So if you can catch us in concert, that would be best. But you also get an idea in the recording. For our version, Karl-Heinz couldn't join us because of the coronavirus restrictions and travel restrictions. Luckily, my other half, my husband, Ed Bennett, who's a composer and a performer as well, he knows the piece, he knows Karl Heinz, we've worked together, so he's been able to step in at quite short notice to do the electronics. So Ed performs with me on stage, and he has a little setup with his MIDI controller and um, his laptop. So he has all the sounds on his laptop and he controls the distribution through space. If you watch him, actually, he's performing as well. It's very engaging because he is moving, you know, and the sounds are moving. It's really a very interesting kind of world that you get to experience as an audience member, I think. It's a very interesting piece. It's a very challenging piece. I suppose one thing that occurs to me when thinking about it, and I've been thinking about it a lot, (laughs) is that... Rightly or wrongly, we have expectations about how music should be played, how it should be presented. I'm talking about classical music particularly, and that sort of sense of tradition that can be associated with it. And I think it's really good to challenge these expectations and challenge these norms, and especially as we move forward and, you know, perhaps try to entice new audiences to listen to this music. Certainly with the Goldberg Variations, there's a lot of this uh, venerated tradition and it's very weighty. And you have so many really wonderful interpretations that we have on record available to us. So I also kind of found that very challenging when thinking about, okay, I'm approaching this piece. It's almost like, how dare I? You know, who am I to to approach this edifice? And, you know, that so many great pianists and harpsichordists have interpreted. But then it's been quite liberating 
to think about it in different ways and thinking, well, we're also recontextualizing the fact that we're reframing it with electronic sound is adding something new. And it also allows me to shed maybe a personal interpretation onto this piece. And it was very liberating then to think, okay, well, how am I going to play the variations themselves? Maybe it's also okay to allow this to be personal so I can explore and add something that is my own. I don't have to feel like I must measure up to the Glenn Gould versions or Angela Hewitt or, you know, whatever you like. It, it doesn't matter ultimately. Xenia passed over Bennett there and she'll be performing Goldberg Verk at Sunday at noon at the Hugh Lane Gallery in Dublin this coming Sunday at noon. And the recorded version of the piece with that bonus binaural file is out on November 12th on Ogodos via Bandcamp. Now that the hardware store has cleared away all that jolly orange decor from Halloween, there's space in our lives for some grown-up ghostliness in the shape of Ghost Songs. Ghost Songs is a new release from Roisin Blunny's Letera Vocal Ensemble, exploring ghostliness, memory and the boundaries between the living and the dead. It showcases new choral works by Rona Clark, Sean Doherty and Michael Hollihan, created in response to texts by Irish writers writers, live and ghost, as well as readings of their works. Onya Gallagher spoke to Roisin Blunny about the place where words become music. The choral pieces are all for SATB choir, um, or sometimes multiple parts, SSATB or SSAATTBB, depending on the wishes of the composer in terms of giving life to the poem in a particular way. So sometimes you might have a a unison moment if a particular moment of uh, of power, powerful expression is required and then a much more dense texture then depending on what the composer wishes to express at that moment. So, for example, a, a piece that my choir, Leitari Vocal Ensemble, commissioned, um, Sean Doherty's piece, The Destroyer, which is a really powerful setting of a poem by a really interesting poet, Lola Ridge, that piece is in double choir so it's two times SATB and the two choirs just really interact with each other in a, in a very almost ferocious way as we try to express the meaning of the piece which is in turn of course trying to express the composer's interpretation of the meaning of the poem. I am of the wind, a wisp of the battering wind. My name is Roisin Blunny and I'm a choral conductor and I'm also the producer of the new album Ghost Songs, Contemporary Music and Words from Ireland. So The Destroyer is a poem by Lola Ridge and it's it's an amazing poem really because it's very much open to interpretation. Um, it begins with I am of the wind, a wisp of the battering wind. Sean Doherty, the composer, puts in his programme notes that he believes it's about the butterfly effect, which is this idea that a, a tiny change in initial circumstances can have very wide-reaching implications broadly. But as we've just come through the pandemic, I know Sean, who's a colleague of mine, of course, here at DCU, Sean has been really rethinking what is this poem about? Because Lola Ridge wrote it and published it in 1918, which was, of course, the time of the Spanish flu. And it's all about this spreading throughout the world and not being able to be stopped. And so I think it really has resonances right throughout history. And Lola Ridge was a, a fascinating poet who was born in Ireland in 1873, then went to 
Australia, New Zealand, San Francisco, and ended up working in radical politics and feminist activism in New York. So maybe we can find some meaning for the poem there. Sean Doherty does a really wonderfully powerful setting of the poem with the sounds of the wind. He uses a lot of extra musical techniques, you know, working with consonants and vocal effects to create a sound world and a build-up of excitement with some stamping towards the end to really emphasise the, the idea that the destroyer is at the heart of this wonderful poem. In The Destroyer, Sean isolates particular consonants from the words. So, for example, at the beginning of the piece, the first line is, I am of the wind, that focuses in on the letter N there. I am of the wind, and then the strong D at the end. And when you multiply that across the eight choral parts that are going on at the time, it it creates a very special effect. And similarly, then, the next line, a wisp uh, of the battering wind, a wisp of the battering wind. He takes the S of wisp, a wisp of the wind and by isolating those consonants just creates a nearly percussive effect um, in the voices. The composers that are involved in ghost songs are all composers who do a lot of research, they do a lot of thinking, they do a lot of reading around the poems that they choose to set and and before choosing they do a lot of research in terms of finding a poem that really sparks their interest, but also sparks ideas of, of how they might set it to music. And they all respond to the text in, the text in very different ways. So Rona Clark, for example, sets the well-known ch- traditional children's rhyme, The Old Woman, and she sets all the words of the poem, but she takes out certain words for special treatment, particularly to repeat for reasons of emphasis. So that poem begins, uh, there was an old woman, all skin and bone, who lived near a graveyard all alone. And you can hear that there are wonderful consonants within that opening uh, line. And she took out the phrase skin and bone, skin and bone. And she makes that this kind of repeating pattern throughout. And that forms the basis then for a a really super dramatic setting of that particular text. And the finish of the piece is, is just wonderful. It, uh, asks the choir to sing from their highest low to their lowest note uh, and vice versa with with frantic stamping at the same time to evoke the the scene of the poor old woman who uh, has come to a very bad end. We recorded the full album just before the onset of the pandemic and since then um, I've been working away with my wonderful sound engineer and co-producer Richard Duckworth on all the editing and mixing and I just feel We were so fortunate that we had all the recording completed just before all choral activities came to a complete halt in March 2020, uh, along with so many other aspects of what we do. The Ghost Song by Paula I was really going for that ethereal effect. And aside from the the choral works, um, I think a place that we can really hear that ethereal nature of expression is in the the amazing collaborations of the poet Doreen and Ikenaja and the the harpist and singer Sheila Denver. Um, They also collaborate on the first track of the album, which is called Numinosity. And this is a poem in English by Doreen and Ikenaja that really sets the scene for the whole album. It it starts off, uh, I see sketch 
stretches of islands half revealed like deities in a haze and the lines are sung by Sheila and then recited by Darina with really interesting harp accompaniment and then they kind of come together on the final line of the poem and uh, it really is a, a track that encapsulates so much of what the album is about. I see sketches of islands half revealed like deities in a haze Sunshines on sea Like errant particles glittering in their own glory Sunshines on sea Like errant particles glittering in their own glory The presence of numinous beings Reflect of the The presence of numerous beings reflect off the surface. Brown rushes turn gold on cliffs. Numinosity there by Darina Nikanaja and Sheila Denver from the Leitera Vocal Ensemble's album Ghost Stories, and their director Roisin Blunny was talking to Anya Gallagher. And finally, this time on the Culture File Weekly, Saving the Planet One Urkel Chair at a Time, Ellen Ryle, Ellie Waters, Anna Sheehan and Meredith Davis came together last year as Refunk. Their currently Instagram-based startup works in the circular economy, diverting unwanted furniture from landfill by linking crafters and customers. Louise McMahon went to meet Refunk for some junk bonding. <laughs> I could say, okay, yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> so Refunk is basically a one-stop shop, a sustainable furniture solution. We facilitate the three stages of the furniture upcycling process, the donating, the upcycling and the selling. Yeah, so there's four female founders on the team. We are all really good friends. We all have different strengths and different skill sets, which is lovely. And we thought of the idea this time last year, really. So it's almost a year old. Yeah, a year long that we've been working on it. I feel like everyone is really aware of like the circular economy in the fashion industry. So, you know, big depop, you know, reselling old clothes. But we found that... There wasn't really a solution for furniture. 10 million tonnes of furniture is discarded annually in the EU. So that's really just being dumped in landfills. And a lot of this is perfectly good. But, you know, people update their homes a lot, their aesthetic a lot. So sometimes it just doesn't work for them anymore. And it can be a real burden to get rid of. So we provide a service that people can donate furniture to. They know that it's being passed along to an upcycler and then an end buyer, so it's not being put into the dump. Then we match that donation with an upcycler. We have a list of over 70 upcyclers around Dublin and the surrounding areas. Not all of those have worked through Refunk yet, but they're all on our mailing list and they're all involved through our Instagram community. Just to like get the visibility and stuff for women in the startup ecosystem, I think is really, really important. There's lots of funding and lots of inspiration obviously available to girls but for some reason it just seems that it's very male dominated even in universities which is really interesting yeah so we actually started this idea from a university um they're called like innovation challenges so it's this time last year and it was basically a weekend long hackathon 
um, the focus was sustainable cities. So we came up with Refunk during that weekend and we ended up winning that competition. Tangent in Trinity have a summer accelerator program called Launchbox and we did that for three months over summer. We got some funding which really helped us prove out the idea that just ended the end of August and we actually came second place out of the 10 teams. So that was really, really exciting. So since then, we got involved with Trinity Entrepreneurial Society. We got involved with Enactus, which is amazing for all startups that are impact-led and really care about, you know, the good of society. So we were really lucky in the fact that we got a partnership with GoCar uh, as part of their CSR programme. We had a contact through the Enactus Society and they basically are giving us free use of their go-cars, uh, which has been really, really helpful. The four of us, the founders, are literally driving. We're doing every single delivery ourselves around Dublin every evening and on the weekends. We have kind of built up our Instagram organically to over 2,300 followers at this stage, which has been amazing. It's very like, you know, aesthetic on our Instagram, which we thought was really important to us because we do want to like highlight the beauty of the pieces and the beauty of the craft that is upcycling because it is really all about aesthetics and making things look beautiful again. And we also wanted it to be very informative. So there's a lot of stuff like explaining what the circular economy is, explaining how Refunk works, highlighting the scary facts about, you know, Ikea, for example, which is probably one of the most accessible and popular furniture choices in Ireland at the moment, they produce 0.1% of the entire world's carbon emissions. And that's just one company, which is just crazy. And we also highlight our upcyclers because obviously we wouldn't have, you know, refunk without them. So it's really, really important for us to highlight them, give them a platform um, and to showcase their talents as well. So we actually have like a special collection, like the Trinity collection. Trinity actually were clearing out one of their old buildings called the Rubrics building and it's four or five hundred years old and it's where all the professors will have lived and in that we got all these amazing chairs, desks, like dressers, wardrobes, like beautiful pieces and we were putting pictures on our stories. Every single person in the upcycling community replied being like you hit the jackpot, you got these Urkel style chairs. There's another post on our Instagram of those Urkel style chairs, one of our upcyclers, Ashling. Um, did six of them. She was really creative in that she did every chair a different colour, but all the same style. So she left the bottom of it just its natural wood. And they were absolutely beautiful and not something that people would automatically think of doing, but they sold super quickly. I think we sold them within like an hour. Yeah, and, our first sale. Um, yeah, our first sale. Yeah, that first piece, like it, was, it has such a, holds such a special place in our heart because it was actually purchased by our first mentor on our first day when we did that competition this time last year. Um, so the Rediscovery Centre is like the centre for the circular economy in Ireland. It's like a semi-state-run body. It focuses more on kind of training and education. So they'd have like you know, workshops, they'd have kids come in to try and teach them from like a really young age. It's furniture, but it also focuses on fashion. What else? They're gardening. So there are concessions in there for small circular businesses. So we obviously wanted to go out there and, you know, see how we could align with them or how we could help each other. They hold workshops themselves and that's what we're looking to do. We're actually looking to do an upcycling workshop. So we're hoping to host it on the 20th of November. We're actually working with another startup that we met through Dogpatch called Local Workshop who are really really helpful and we actually chose to do this as a beginner's workshop because our goal was to you know teach the really basic skills to 
as many people as possible and then with the possibility that you know they could maybe work with Refunk in the future and it provides another source of income for them. Once that runs smoothly and goes well we're hopefully going to host some more workshops for our advanced upcyclers teaching loads of different skills like decoupage and stenciling and stuff like that as well. We're only taking in wooden, solid wood furniture pieces at the moment just to guarantee a certain level of quality. So the wood always has to be cleaned down and then sanded and then depending on the style of the upcycler, that's kind of the beauty of Refunk as well is that every upcycler has a different style. So some people will just paint certain elements of the piece and varnish the bare wood as the rest. Other upcyclers will paint a super bright, colourful piece, maybe paint on some flowers. We have a lovely green table that's for sale at the moment with a hand-painted flower on top. And then we have another upcycler who's doing mosaic on the top of a coffee table. We also want to kind of have the upcycling workshops as a way to kind of build a community. Um, especially obviously the last two years, you know, it's quite like, not like a lonely <laughs> sport, but you know, you do it by yourself at home. Um, and so many like really, really talented people who all get along really well, but they're all, you know, friends through Instagram. They've never actually met in person. So it'd be a way just to build a community, have everyone to meet each other and just get the word out there about the circular economy. Because obviously there is like a really high level of skill and creativity in, in it, but it is also something at a lower level that anyone can do. The Refunk team there and the reporter was Louise McMahon. You can find out more on Instagram at Refunk Upcycling. And that brings to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more stylish resurrections next Saturday at 6.30pm or whenever and indeed wherever you get your podcasts. Till then, bye now.